Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Something Positive for Positive People is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that essentially serves as a self-help and mental health support resource hub for people who are navigating herpes stigma. Uh, this podcast episode, I'm introducing here one of my friends, Justine, who is a sex educator. And I mentioned to her that one of my intentions with this episode, I find that as I'm getting older, I'm looking at things that um, maybe I've historically had misconceptions about, or maybe I'm challenging for myself compared to what I've just sort of been told about how to do things. And I find that in regular conversations that I'm having with people, especially people who follow me on social media, is that there's a misunderstanding or a little bit of miscommunication about what it means to be a sex educator versus someone on social media who uplifts information or talks about sex. Like I position myself as sort of a journalist in this space because I'm just asking the questions, I'm sharing the information, and I'm seeking answers and solutions to things that you all present to be um, question worthy, so to speak. So, uh, Justine, I am going to ask you to introduce yourself because I totally I was going to be like, yeah, Justine, sex educator, dot, dot, dot. And that's it. So uh, this is going to be an episode that isn't about herpes. I'm going to try not to make it about herpes, but somehow I always end up doing that. I did a little accident earlier in one of my interviews. We we're talking about grief and then somehow I just ended up. <laughs> bringing up herpes like six times but anyway um yeah so i will let you introduce yourself and then we'll just let the conversation flow from there all right what do you want to know courtney what do you what is your title what is your official work title uh official work title for my llc is owner (laughs) not that sexy but um i am an intersectional health educator that is what i pitch myself as intersectional health educator now when you say intersectional health educator what i think are sexual health mental health physical health what other kind of health is there (laughs) emotional health Uh sexual health yeah all of those things are true so i cover those types of topics um but through an intersectional lens which takes into account our various identities that um inform our ability to experience health All right. How did you get into this? I got into the field of health ed by teaching an eighth grade math class in Houston, Texas in 2008 and had pregnant eighth graders. And I said, I can't do math. These kids are pregnant. And there were a slew of other issues around health that were preventing them from being strong learners. So that's when I made the connection between health education, and academic achievement. Wow. All right. So math class, math teacher turned intersectional health, say it again. Educator. Health educator. It wasn't intersectional just yet. I was still very new to the field. So I just knew that I needed to do sex education with these students. And in Texas. And in Texas, abstinence only Texas. Yeah. All right. So what was the first step for you? How did you you saw this and you took some sort of action? What was the action? 
Um, well, I approached the principal at that school and I told her about a 16-year-old student that I had in that class who misses the school year for half the year because she is on a period and she didn't know she was on a period. She thought she was sick. She just thought she bleeds a lot for some reason because she is ill and doesn't come to school because it hurts her and she doesn't know what's wrong. So she was missing school that many times and usually eighth graders in the US are about 14 years old and she was 16 because she had already failed two years in a row. And she was falling through the cracks. Nobody was really monitoring her progress in that way, except for failing her continually. And um, that's uh, when I had stepped in and said, there is a direct connection to why she is not doing well in school um, with her health and her lack of knowledge about what's happening to her. Um, and so my first step was to speak to the principal about this specific case study. And then I had proposed teaching sex ed classes for the last week um, I was with students. And I had incorporated statistics around um, various you know, aspects of sex ed topics. Um, we looked at financial literacy lessons and incorporated a bunch of um, things around like life skills and you know, sexuality topics as well. Um, and I was able to really fuse together math with sex ed in that way. And that was the very beginning of my origin story as a sex educator. When you say intersectionality, after hearing that story, what I think now is not mm, ethnicity, sex, gender, I think now financial status, uh, education level, I think uh, those intersections of things that maybe we don't connect as being the reason that students are failing a class yeah. or not attending school, you like pieced all of that together mm -hmm. at this intersection, or and this is what you arrived to at that intersection is this person, this student was having a period mm -hmm. and didn't know that this was what this student's body was doing. Yeah. That's yeah. wild. Yeah. And when you position this to the principals and staff in Texas, where it's abstinence-only sex education, I, I can't imagine this was easy for them to get on board with unless you positioned it a particular way. So can you walk me through what the pitch yeah. was? Yeah, I mean, I think I was pretty persuasive. I mean, I had told them... Passionate like, for sure. Passionate yeah. for sure, of course. Um, I had said, like, look, if you want to matriculate these students, you have to address their health. Otherwise, you're going to continue to just keep failing them and you'll continue to have 16 year olds in your middle school. And they're like, I know, but you know, it's these kids, like, you know, they don't come to school. They keep skipping school. I go, but why are they skipping school? You need to be addressing those things. And um, what I told them was, look, I wanna teach some sex ed classes and I will make it relevant to math. And um, she trusted me because she had saw how successful I already was with the students in other ways and said, okay, I'll approve this, but you can't say three things. And I said, okay, what? And she said, you can't say the words contraception, abortion, or homosexuality. And I said, bet, I got a thesaurus, let's go. Yeah, can't you just use synonyms? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what was their beef with those three words specifically as an abstinence only state in a christian supremacy that we're in um they uh, is this a public school this is a public school okay. yeah you know they're anti-choice they're homophobic 
um, and they believe that it should be abstinence until marriage, so birth control is not a thing. So that's exactly why abortion, contraception, homosexuality should not be discussed. Can we talk about how harmful it is just to kind of turn a blind eye to the fact that regardless of us saying don't have sex, we're not talking about alternatives for pregnancy, and we're not going to talk about same-sex sex, people are still ending up pregnant. Uh People are still having sex. People are still finding ways to go about utilizing contraception ahead of time, too late, whenever. So why is it that it's so easy for these things to just kind of fall under the cracks, even though we know that this isn't working? Because it is attached to so much shame. It's so taboo. It's so um, stigmatized. And people feel that if you talk about these things, then you promote it, which is the absolute opposite of what research has shown. If you actually talk about it and equip, especially young people, to be able to make these decisions because they are well-informed decisions, they actually lower STI rates. They lower unplanned pregnancy. They increase levels of awareness around what is a healthy versus an unhealthy relationship. They're able to make better decisions for themselves. It does not prove that you are now engaging in more sex or having sex earlier. Sexual debut is actually a lot later and more delayed when they are receiving comprehensive sex education. You know, I was talking to uh, one of the guests that I had who will, the episode will have been out by now. She mentioned in her 20s asking her mother what an orgasm is. She's like, yeah, I don't know what that is. So I asked my mom, hey mom, what's an orgasm? And she just like, got shook and was like, uh, and wouldn't give her an answer. So hearing that and kind of bridging the gap here between what your work is and working with youth and giving them an understanding of all of these components, it's like, if we're not willing as the people that young people are going to, to engage in conversations about stuff with their bodies, then where are they supposed to get this information from? Porn. That is exactly, <laughs> that's where I got mine at. And it's wild because porn has shaped the way that I view sex. Like what turns me on has so much to do with my first exposure to porn. And it's, I can't imagine how many people like view sex from that lens yeah. and maybe not even are aware of it. Yeah. So as you are teaching youth about sex and doing sex education. Can you give us a little bit of uh, what it is that you teach? Like, how do you talk about sex from a lens of math? Well, at that point in time, from a math lens mm-hmm. without, you know, talking about those particular aspects of it. Like, what what is sex education teaching look like? Yeah. Um, well, there are different types of sex ed in the US. One is abstinence only, which is um, only talking about abstinence and waiting until marriage, uh, refraining from sex for a certain period of time, and no other education around understanding your body. And then there's abstinence plus education, which is talking about contraception um, and other forms of birth control, while also talking about abstinence as an option. And then you have comprehensive sex education, which is talking about all of them without a heavier emphasis on any one of them, but equally covering all of those aspects of how to protect yourself, healthy relationships, consent, 
um, looking at various identities, um, gender identity and sexual orientation, um, and really looking at how power and agency often play a role in young people's um, experiences and their, um, their, their ways of navigating um, relationships. So those are like the three main like categories of sex ed in America over like history. Um, and what I do is I teach intersectional sex education, which is kind of a improved version of comprehensive sex ed. Because I could teach about an inner uterine device. I could teach them about- um, Is that an IUD? That is an IUD, okay. very nice, yeah. So I could teach them about you know different birth control, um, but it doesn't mean that they'll have access to it. I can teach them about um, you know, uh, STIs, but it doesn't mean that they'll have access to managing it if they were to contract one. It doesn't mean that they are actually going to live in a way that matches what they're learning because there are so many things that are oppressing them from accessing care. It might be, um, okay, great. So I think I, you know, understand these symptoms uh, that I might be experiencing. I have them, but now what do I do? Well, I don't want to tell anyone, so I'm just not going to say anything. Or our family doesn't have health insurance and I don't want to stress my parents out, so I can't do that. Or my parents would kill me if they were to find out that I was sexually active, so I'm just not going to say anything. Right. Or I want to be sexually active, but I don't want to get pregnant, but I don't have any adults in my life that I can trust to um, help me to access birth control. Right. Or I think I might be pregnant, but I can't afford plan B. Like all of these things is like, OK, well, our teacher taught us all these things, but I can't actually implement it into my life. And we have to start talking about how these intersections of race, class, gender, you know, um, language, citizenship, body size, skin color, uh, neurodivergence, mental health, all of these things are um, either in service of getting us the care we need if we are in a privileged, powerful identity, or it's going to exacerbate our health outcomes because we aren't able to access care that we need or it might be more stigmatized in our communities. And so when students you know, are learning all the different new terms about sexual orientation and about gender identity, okay, great, so now I know what the difference is between transgender and cisgender, but I can't come out because my parents would kill me. So it doesn't matter if we're just giving them the vocabulary or the statistics or the, the facts around what things are, if they can't actually experience health and be their authentic self. And so what my work is as an intersectional health educator is by activating students to see the power and privilege and the marginalization that impacts their ability to be sexually healthy and do something about it. Um, in, in some circles, this might be called critical race theory, dare I say, but it is something that we need to be critical about because otherwise I'm just teasing them with giving them definitions and all this information, but not able to actually experience it. Wow. All right. So hearing this, I think about a real experience with my mom. My mom went to her parents and said, hey, I, I want, I need to be on birth control. I need birth control. And I remember her telling me, she said, my granddad was like, what you need that for? And she ain't asking again. Boom. Here I am. <laughs> and that kind of speaks to the 
perhaps language mm-hmm. or the ability to access birth yeah. control or whatever contraceptions because or having alternative types of contraception yeah. too uh, versus the ability to get it because my grandfather was who stood in the way of my mother being able to get what she was asking for mm-hmm. and I don't know what access would look like if we are in a perfect world where, okay, this person knows what their options are, but just because they know what their options are, like you said, we'd just be teasing them by giving them information. Now it's about availability and accessibility. Yep. So in the world that Justine is working to create, what does access and availability look like? Yeah. I mean, it means that, um, one, there is not a fear of ramifications for you asking questions about how to get care. So many kids don't even want to ask those questions because they're afraid of getting in trouble, being judged, um, feeling shame for even thinking about something sexual, right? And so there's already such a unsafe environment to even learn this content. And so I think part of access and care and experiencing health is being in a safe enough space for you to even gain this knowledge and ask questions. I think the other part too is, um, you know, how they can be using their own platforms of privilege and power to share it or give it up. Students of privilege and power. Like how can white cisgender straight kids help their friends who are queer and brown, right? How could they actually leverage their capital in a way that can give and grant access to their peers who don't have access as easily? Um, And so I think that a lot of it comes down to first understanding what the problem is first, how we got there and um, dismantling those systems in small localized ways, whether it be it's your friend, it's your classmate, all the way to actually, I wanna start a club. I wanna you know, do a sex positive club at our school. We have spectrum clubs, we have feminist clubs, community service clubs, human rights clubs, but Just maybe now it. we're gonna create one that has to do with sex positive yeah. clubs, right? There's, there's schools I've worked with that have the affirmative consent club. Um, you know, the healthy relationships club. And it's talking all about like how to build that already. And that is like a very small localized way of already activating your just school community. Maybe now you write, um, you know, something for your school paper. Um, and then you're able to add some journalism to all of this stuff that you are experiencing or are trying to get the school to prioritize more. Right. And so there's so many ways to just activate the students so that they are a part of dismantling those oppressive systems that our generations still suffer from. Um, Using social media to be able to get these the word out, to mobilize people, to spread awareness. Right. And so, I mean, I think that Gen Z has um, uh, a different way of disseminating and consuming information much faster than which we ever had. And um, they just need adults to be able to kind of guide them in that direction. I was just about to ask you, what is the parent's role in us being able to get this high quality sex education that we are hoping to be able to get across? Parents' role is critical and that is what is stopping um, a lot of this from being executed. because if parents understood what the outcomes were of someone receiving comprehensive sex ed, 
they would not be protesting as hard as they are in school board meetings or in PTA meetings. And what is their objection? Is it you're telling you're my turning kids my to kid have gay? Sex? Oh, I, I didn't even take it there. Oh yeah, it's like you teaching this is not age appropriate. You're turning my kid gay. You're gonna make my kid have sex earlier than they should. You're making them promiscuous. Um, you're gonna be the cause of you know my child's health demise. And you're a groomer, like whatever it is, like all of these things are still stemming from the same reasons that the principal, you know, in in Texas was stopping me from saying abortion, contraception and homophobia. We're in a sex negative society. And these are parents who never received comprehensive sex ed either, let alone intersectional sex ed. So let me ask this, because I think that there can be some benefit but I also think that if there was gonna be some benefit that it would have happened already, but bringing the parents into the room to receive the kind of sex ed that they their children are gonna receive, for them to see what this looks like so that they can see for themselves. Because I think when they hear sex education, their minds immediately go to sex and education. You're educating my kid on having sex. And I think that our society confuses sex with intercourse exclusively, not sex as sexuality and everything that that encompasses. Yeah. Um, but they seem pretty well versed about what, you know, the history classes are covering, the math classes are covering. They're not complaining to those teachers, right? And so I think there's so much of. We in New York, y'all. We in New York. Y'all gonna hear some stuff in the background. There's so much um, stigma around the word sex. It definitely is its own like branding issue for sure. Um, but parents that show up for like curriculum night, back to school night, open house, when they're learning about you know what all the other subjects are that their child is learning, um, that is a perfect opportunity for them to also hear what are we, they learning outside of those academic subjects. Oh, there's a health class. They're covering mental health. They're covering substance misuse. They're covering um, sexuality, nutrition. You're teaching my kids how to do drugs. Like, is that an issue when we talk about substance use? Right. So then the assumptions are very much that, um, you know, they are doing the job that the parents are supposed to do, right? And how is that going to happen when parents are also not educated about these things and perpetuate stigma and perpetuate the shame or have already silenced their child around these things or the parents themselves are actual child abusers? And so their child definitely doesn't even have the safety to be able to learn these things because it's happening in their own personal home. Whereas schools have mandated reporters to be able to really take care of these children in ways that sometimes even homes aren't affording them. I think about our education coming from three places for youth, I mean. Youth gets their education, sex education, let's just call it what it is, their sex education and understanding about sex from school, home, anywhere else, right? Anywhere else being the media, let's just say yep. the media, right? At home, one thing may be taught, which is, no, we're not going to talk about that. And yeah. I, I just use this as a general thing because the school, like, or the parents may be like, they ain't teaching y'all that at school. Don't, why you ask me about that? Y'all ain't learned about this yet mm -hmm. at school. And I'll use it myself as an example at home. The emphasis was don't get nobody pregnant. Don't bring no kids home. And this is based off of like my parents were young when they had me. So it was like, don't you have no kids, go to college, go to high school, finish high school, go to college, right? Yeah. In school, the emphasis was don't get 
uh, an STI. Mm -hmm. It was, hey, you need to avoid sex until you're married, otherwise you're gonna get an STI. There wasn't really much of an emphasis on anything else Mm -hmm. in regards to it. And then I look at everything else, like my friends and porn, and these people were having sex, nobody was getting pregnant. I assume nobody was getting an STI because I'd keep seeing the same people in new porn with different partners Mm -hmm. over time so it's like hold on y'all telling me not to have sex because i'm gonna get somebody pregnant you telling me not to have sex because i'm gonna get a sexually transmitted infection but i'm watching these people have sex and not wear condoms and ain't nobody getting pregnant ain't nobody getting no diseases Mm -hmm. so i'm probably gonna mirror those people because you discredit yourself when you're up against so much information that is conflicting with what it is that you're Mm -hmm. saying and i'm not saying that like we have to just give up and just surrender to just what's out there. We got to conform to what porn is sharing. I think that it's important for us to give the options. And like you said, also make it to where it's available and accessible, but we all got to get on the same fucking page. We are not on the same page at all. And parents are thinking that their kids are good little angels who never are going to be exposed to anything. And we live in a world where we got TikTok. (laughs) <laughs> and I don't even want to that's going to be something that we can talk about next but um, just speaking to the three areas that I'm, I'm saying three there could be more uh, depending on what you want to share but how do we get on the same page with mm-hmm. so much information out there how do we even support our youth with yeah. accurate consistent information yeah. yeah I mean parents are supposed to be involved in their schools in their child's you know school schooling they are supposed to know what they're covering they're supposed to know um you know what uh the contents of the curriculum look like do does every parent read every email does every parent show up to these meetings no it's it's difficult right um but it is one place for that transparency to occur because I have had a lot of parents feel suspicious about my curriculum. They have a meeting with me or they show up for uh, a parent coffee or a workshop and they're like, oh, this is what pornography literacy is? Oh yeah, my kid definitely needs this. Thanks for explaining it to me, right? But that is not a common um, you know, access point because parents have to give up their work time to show up for a workshop, even if I'll you know, have that workshop recorded for them to watch later, they don't have time to do that, right? Um, but that is why we have standardized um, you know, metrics for what they need to be learning from K through 12, just like every subject. And s- families are supposed to trust that what the schools are covering are, have been vetted and are evidence-based and peer-reviewed and developmentally relevant for students which is what comprehensive sex ed does. Um, But parents right away wanna intervene because they think that sex education is grooming their child. And so no matter what, you know, they don't want it to be covered in the same way now that, you know, they don't want history classes to cover black America and what's reality and what, you know, real American history is because they're, usually white and don't want to hear that they have been villainized in this way, right? So I mean, they're doing the same thing because it's all about their own fragility, their own um, ego, as opposed to what students really need to learn to be global citizens and to be people that um, are self-sufficient and can take care of themselves and make decisions that are healthy for their bodies. So this is stuff that is 
you know, taught by credentialed people and schools should be trusted, but we are not in that environment anymore. Parents thinking that sex education is grooming their children, it it very much is like the opposite. Reason I say this is because I've seen this a number of times and I have a podcast episode. I wish I could remember the number and title, but I've referenced this a few times. I interviewed a black woman who had chlamydia a few times in high school and then got herpes by an older man. And it was what she didn't know that got her in trouble. It's like people who would be groomers are relying on the ignorance of youth. And they kind of just lurk in the shadows. And this becomes like a normalized thing where uh, she mentioned like older guys who are not in high school, 20 somethings, picking up 16, 17, 18 year old girls and outside of school. And these are being these are the people who are teaching them about the world because again we look at school we look at home and we look at these two places and when the information conflicts with what's in the real world and we don't feel safe to challenge what's in school and what's at home then we're gonna go out into the real world and regardless of intent we're gonna get answers regardless if they're right or wrong so it's like how not there's no how we're not equipping youth with the tools that they need to combat the predatory behavior that's enabled by the ignorance of our youth yeah we are furthering their vulnerability um and oh good you do have language for this all right because i don't i don't know the words but i i think about that story that she told me and i was just like wow you know that's a real thing and it's accepted in the community as a norm Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. literally a norm yep the accusations that sex education um, sex educators are groomers is uh, a misuse of the term to the point where it is um, making young people even more susceptible to um, being victims of adult predators. And we've been talking mainly about, I would say, like middle school and up um, with some of these topics. But when we think about, you know, child abuse and child sexual abuse, we're talking about five-year-olds, six-year-olds, and seven-year-olds who are not getting any education around private parts being private, what their body boundaries are, what the names are of their private parts, to be able to actually identify when something happens to their body boundary being violated by a predator and tell a safe adult what has happened to them because they don't have the language for it because we still have to call it hoo-ha and you know your little bird or whatever and then kids aren't able to actually say what happened to them they're you know saying well uh my tummy hurts when in fact it's their vulva that hurts but they don't have that language they don't know what that is and they won't know that nobody is supposed to touch that except themselves and so they're just thinking well this person said that like it's a secret between me and him so you know, why wouldn't I pay, you know, listen to that? And he offered me M&Ms if I just kept quiet, right? Um, And so you're getting all of this actual grooming that's occurring to our most vulnerable kids. And yet the sex educators who are, 
giving them the tools to actually protect themselves, to assert themselves, and to report behavior that is happening to them that is non-consensual, yet we're the bad guys. And you got to wonder where this is, like, who benefits from that? Who benefits from the people who are giving the information and the tools that clearly are effective in combating the bad like who's tweaking that narrative because you know someone who might actually be predatory or have ill intent Mm -hmm. would probably be the one that's like yeah get those sex educators out of here we don't need them teaching our kids right and nobody's even looking at that like why is there no one challenging the parents or the adults who are like, no, I don't want my kid to call their penis a penis, their vulva a vulva. I don't want them to know their bodily functions. I don't want them to know this. Like, let kids be kids is, I think, what the message is that I hear. Let kids be kids. And we don't live in a world where kids can just be kids anymore in that sense. Because the minute they get one of these, a cell phone... It's the whole world is available to them. And the minute they are not under the watchful eye of the adults and caretakers, the school systems, when they get out and they're just around their friends or when they're alone or when they're around strangers, they are, like you just said, vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. The argument that, you know, um, I want to preserve my child's innocence is, um, I think, uh, immature if they are allowing their child to play grand theft auto right i mean it's just like okay so you don't want your kid to have sex ed but you're gonna let them play gta it's lazy to me i think that it's lazy i think that it's lazy to not put the effort and time in it's lazy to not put the effort and time in to understand and really come to a conclusion for yourself Mm -hmm. about what sex education is because I think they're thinking intercourse teaching. Yeah. yeah. When you simplify it at its core, it sounds like teaching intercourse. Mm-hmm. You're teaching intercourse to my kid. I don't want that. And while that's a part of like intercourse is a part of, you know, the sexuality and sex umbrella, there is so much more to that than Yep. Putting a penis into a vagina, yep. putting a condom on a banana, yep. like because I think that that's that's literally the image that comes to mind yeah. when I think sex ed, condom on a banana. Yeah. yeah, and when I speak to you know my high schoolers about intimacy, I tell them that intimacy does not equal intercourse. You can be intimate while having intercourse, but I'm giving you intimacy education. I'm not giving you intercourse education. Um, and so you know, there's really this misunderstanding as to what. Um, I do, um, and yet it is something that is so necessary and so life-saving. Yeah, and this also gives youth a choice in, quote, preserving their innocence, which probably sounds really creepy to them. They're like, ew, what do you mean, right? If we actually talk to you, um, I did on Tuesday, actually, after giving a talk, um, I hung out and the 16, 17, 18-year-olds had really good questions about herpes. And I was very like, I I was shocked. I was just like, these are kids. And I even said that and I was like, yo, I apologize. I didn't mean to call y'all kids. You know, this is new to me (laughs) to be able to sit and have conversations with youth, young adults, um, 
high school seniors, juniors, and these are people who are part of a program, like an after-school program, where they're health ambassadors uh, for their peers in a way where they're getting information that they can relay to their peers from um, this nonprofit organization. It's uh, Project Safe, and I don't want to like talk too much and butcher stuff about it, but uh, essentially that's what it is. It's just like a program that's the liaison between uh, the high school and the organization and their services by having uh, youth ambassadors who are able to say, hey, this is what I'm seeing in my schools, here's what the needs are, and allowing for an organization like Project Safe to be able to tailor responses, resources, and support so that they can bring that back to the uh, to their peers. That's how I understand it. And this was one of the things that you mentioned, you know, being able to have these clubs at school and be able to have like a sex positivity club or a sex education club, mm-hmm. consent uh, club. Um, I, I, I ran off on my tangent. I don't know where I was going <laughs> with that. But there is so much more to understanding what your work is beyond the the buzz phrases. They're buzz phrases. The buzz phrases of let kids be kids, preserve my child's innocence. Um, I don't want... I, that's a very, I guess, privilege. I guess privilege would be the word. It's a privilege to be able to say that mm-hmm. as I'm assuming that a lot of the parents who have issues with this are either super religious, super, you know, perhaps... I don't, I want to say like maybe finances and pregnancies aren't an issue for them because they have the resources to take care of it, so to speak, Mm -hmm. cross that bridge when they get to Mm -hmm. it. But for black and brown communities where parents are working 10 hours a day and don't really have time to investigate and understand what their youth are being or what their children are being taught. Um, if they are unable to really engage with their child, their children outside of school and teach them and understand like the climate of what they're experiencing and being able to speak to it and be there for them. It's a lot. Parenting is hard. Mm -hmm. Teaching is hard. Learning is hard. All of these things are very challenging. And there is so much of a burden that is self-placed on each of these three areas that I labeled between home, school, and community. Let's just say outside community. The burden is on from one person to the next. Like I'm imagining three fingers all pointing in the direction of another finger to where it's like, well, you should be teaching them that. You should be teaching them that. They should be learning this here. But I tell you what, outside those three fingers, you got the people who are lurking in the shadows who are like, yeah, I got it. (laughs) Y'all don't worry about it. I got it. Rubbing their hands together with the bird man face. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. I'd add another one there about the types of parents that are saying those things are the parents who have not healed from their own sexual traumas. And so they think that if they were to have their child introduced to these topics, it would mean they would have to address their own issues with it. And a lot of people don't want to do that. That's really vulnerable. So they'd rather avoid it. Abstinence only. Even about talking. I said I wasn't going to do this, but this this comes back to herpes as well. You know, a lot of the work around dealing with a person's diagnosis 
uh, for yourself, you know, it's so easy to, we talk about like not disclosing. The easy thing to do is not disclose. And you mentioned that intimacy is a piece of what you teach. And it is a very vulnerable thing to request intimacy. And that's typically what a person is offering with a disclosure. Hey, whether that be a romantic, potentially romantic relationship or just a friendship that exists or one that you would like to become closer, you are offering the experiences that come with your herpes diagnosis and how you may feel about that to another person in an attempt to connect with them in order to be seen. And that is essentially one way of viewing intimacy, right? So to avoid that, we may just not disclose. We Mm -hmm. may withhold ourselves Mm -hmm. from connecting with people. And we do a lot of harm in that for ourselves by not doing the challenging thing, which is to deal with that, to look at it and be willing to sit with and understand where this is coming from so that we can go through our own healing process it's a very similar thing i said i wasn't gonna bring herpes into this but i couldn't help it because it was so easy it was so easy to do uh now to be a sex educator are there requirements is there schooling you said you were a math teacher and you were like hey there's a need something need to get done i'm about to do it yeah was there any sort of education that you had gone through in order to become quote qualified yeah um there are a lot of different routes to doing what i'm doing mine is not necessarily uh traditional um in the field but it works so i got a master's in education while i was a math teacher um and then i ended up getting a master's in public health with a focus on sexuality so putting together uh, education degree with a public health degree. I don't equals think I knew about both of them. Health educator. Yeah. I think I knew about the public health. I didn't know about the. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So the you know it helped me to understand education and lesson planning yeah. and scope and sequencing, curriculum design, and all of that, and like classroom management, but then also how to do that around a specific topic, which is the public health one under sexuality. Um, but I know a lot of sex educators that um, went through a social work school, sex therapy. Um, they got certificates in sexuality education. Um, they were, you know, in nursing, they are, you know, in medicine. Um, so there's a lot of different ways I think to practice sex education and be a sex ed professional. Um, it doesn't have to be my way. My way is very long. Um, but it also wasn't my plan. And that's why it, uh, took four years, I guess, of that type of education. And two grad schools so two master's degrees is not necessary but um it definitely makes for a long name with all those letters after it now wow uh i am really impressed with your origin story that that you know it's unfortunate that um, i don't want to call it unfortunate because who knows but uh the way that it happened was it was born out of necessity Mm -hmm. you saw a need and you went for it and that is something that i admire about people you know you see something you you do something it's not just like see something go home and complain about it i wish somebody would do something like you weren't hoping for change you took action yeah i'm a real new yorker with the say something or see something say something see something say something (laughs) yeah um and i i'm i'm just i'm very 
much more understanding of uh like what you do and your role like i i've had an idea of what sex educators do yeah and i think that how you just broke it down in terms of working with youth yeah is perfect like i hope that i'm getting out of the habit of saying hope i believe that people who are listening to this at the very least can have an adjustment to whatever their own preconceptions or preconceived notions about sex education to their children and what what that looks like yeah or at the very least are willing to hear yeah. out what the sex educators are wanting to say because obviously something ain't working if we've got eighth graders pregnant right. you know right. i i can i've known people who've been like i want a baby at very young ages but not to mean it right, right <laughs> you know right, right. um so thank you i, I thank you yeah. for making this time thank you for having me in your home and for this drink and for just <laughs> allowing me to interview you and get this understanding from you and be able to share this with the something positive for positive people audience it is an honor courtney thank you for your trust in me Shouts to Uncle Nearest for uh, black-owned whiskey. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I'm glad that we could see each other during your New York City visit. Oh, yeah, it's, it's been it's been a trip. Um, today, this is my fourth interview today. Um, <laughs> I think that all of them were amazing. I have Good. one uh, on health. Because one of the things that I want to do is I want to give healthcare providers practice taking a sexual history and mm. i think i'm really close to that i just gotta collect some information and understand you know i want to bridge that gap between yeah. the patient side which is what i have so many podcasts on right now to the provider side so that we can get patients comfortable talking to providers about okay. sex and providers comfortable talking to patients about sex Got and it, i yeah. think that that will really change the game for std prevention mm-hmm. as a whole and then i can start to move on to the next thing yeah <laughs> so yeah, yeah awesome. this this trip has been amazing um and like I said, just thank you. Thank you for having me. You are welcome, Thank you for fam. your work. You're welcome. How can people connect with you? Uh, you can find me on my website, justinefonse.com. And can you spell that? Yeah. Justine is J-U-S-T-I-N-E. Fonte is F-O-N-T-E dot com. And my socials are I'm Justine A-F. All right. And the other page. Uh, yeah, I am also a uh, ghostwriter of uh, Boundary Setting, so you can find me on Instagram as your friendly ghostwriter, underscore good, period, buys, underscore. Yeah, that's where we got that framework for disclosing your STI status, your herpes status on your dating profile. All right. That concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. Please like, rate, review, share, and subscribe to this podcast on whatever listening platform you have. Uh, Visit the new and improved www.spfpp.org website. You'll see the new logo. You'll see the new branding. It don't look like a newspaper no more. I got somebody else to come in and actually um, put some work into it. So um, I hope that we are able to... um, I'm nervous you're taking oh it's a video ah! <laughs> um yeah thank you for taking the time to listen i hope that you learned something i believe that you will learn something damn it i gotta stop saying i hope all right till next time i'll catch y'all on another episode